0: It's Laura Nanos and Matthew Zachary, and you're listening to Health Careless, a new original segment from Out of Patients, where Matt and I round up the latest news in healthcare fuckery and patient shit shows. Each week, you'll get a no-nonsense recap of recent headlines brought to you by two longtime friends and healthcare consumers who are short on patience but long on advocacy. I'm a lawyer, and Matt's a cancer survivor and patient advocate. We've been friends since our high school band days, and we're psyched that you're joining us as we break down what's happening and how we feel about it. So buckle up. Hello, Allura. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am begrudgingly trudging by. Let me tell you why I'm great. Because I'm here for this time with you where I have set aside the time in my schedule to be outraged about various types of fuckery. So that makes me happy.
2: But I was expecting you to be happy because you found Uncrustables.
0: I did find the Uncrustables. Okay,
2: good. (laughs) Good.
0: You know, priorities. And, and you know what the thing is? You know what I've learned is, of course, Uncrustables themselves deeply important to my sanity, but also in general, pocket food makes me happy. All pocket food. <laughs> That's your t-shirt. Pocket food? <laughs> pocket food makes me happy. It does. It make, First of all, pocket food makes everyone happy. Spring rolls, summer rolls, ravioli, tortellini, you name it, like anything in a pocket, I will eat it.
2: That is true. That is true. Right.
0: And I think other people feel the same. They just don't realize. So our listeners, allow yourself to indulge in the happiness that is pocket food.
2: May I indulge in a little Gen X angry rant at this point? Just, just just, a small one. I mean, really, why hold yourself back at this point? I miss seasons. I miss the transition to
0: seasons. Because it's like winter all it, of a sudden? It
2: went from 79 to 56 in one day and my head exploded. Jessica, my wife, you know, I had a really bad headache last week when the weather changed in like one hour globally here in New York. (laughs) And she was reading that, you know, I think the Weather Channel talked about how the barometric pressure change from one day to the next was the most extreme in human history. You're kidding. Yeah. Which is why, like, my head exploded. My daughter's head exploded. If you have any sensitivities to barometric pressure and you live in New York and you're listening to this show, then the four people that qualify for this, you'll understand why you've just crashed and burned and stayed in bed one day because oh. it's not supposed to go from 79 to 56 degrees in one day and then boom it's fall.
0: true do you think that it's the barometer to blame for why i feel like shit today or is it because i got my covid booster yesterday oh no <laughs>
2: i mean i'm fine now my brain got used to it now it's fall great wonderful it's fall it'll be 100 degrees next week but for now it's fall i you can blame me i'm gonna just blame obama
0: I feel like that's barometric fuckery. Yeah, barometric. (laughs) Barometer. What is our first story? Okay, so do you remember not so long ago when we were discussing how the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade?
2: Yes, that was a your lawyer, but I'll just say Dobbs. What's the
0: actual name of the case? Yes, it's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And we've already talked at length about what major fuckery that whole thing was. Sure. I'm here to report it on the flip side of fuckery.
2: Like a benefit or an anti-benefit?
0: Well, you know, you can discuss what your opinion is. But here is what the data has borne out. It seems, according to various reports, that teens have been rushing to clinics to get long-term birth control now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. So they're
2: trying to actually avoid unwanted pregnancies.
0: Yeah, and there's a part of this that I think is one of these, we had a terrible cause, but a good effect, kind of like the way the pandemic was terrible, but everybody working from home was a good thing. So yeah, it's a disaster that women have lost all kinds of rights, but it is, in my opinion, a good thing that people are seeking out good birth control to prevent unwanted pregnancies.
2: Don't they know abstinence is the only way? (laughs) What's wrong with you?
0: Anytime, this is my Gen X moment. Anytime anybody says something about abstinence, my brain immediately, besides going back to the C. Everett Coop Public Service announcement, it also goes back to the 90210 episode when Tori Spelling said, it's perfectly good to teach your kids not to go in the swimming pool, but if you know they're going to jump in, you might as well teach them how to swim.
2: Bingo, that was a great one. They, they, they it told, was about the, the, the school board letting condoms in this in the high school.
0: You immediately just remembered the exact plot of the show. <laughs> um How did you do that?
2: Well, my poker face is that Jessica watches every episode, every night, endlessly, nonstop forever
0: hilarious. I, our listeners are not going to believe that I didn't prep you for the fact that I was going to bring that up. You just literally just took that right out of your brain. Amazing. Like, I love it.
2: Contraception in schools was a real thing in the yeah, 80s and 90s. It,
0: right. It was a really big deal. And, and the thing is, I feel like, of course, this is not the price I would like to have paid for teenagers and, and really not just teenagers, but anyone to become more aggressive about asking for birth control. I think it's that's a good thing. And it, it says here, by the way, that this has been trending up even before the Supreme Court handed down Dobbs because the percentage of 15 to 19-year-olds, so we're talking essentially about high school-age students, right? 15 to 19-year-olds who were looking for longer-term birth controls, meaning not condoms, but birth control pills, the uh, IUD, the underarm implant. Teenagers were looking for those methods 15% more in 2015 to, to 2019 than they were before. So- that I mean, that's a big deal. And and I wonder how much of that is, you know, those are the years right before and during the Trump presidency when abortion was something talk, that was talked about all the time. And it was sort of clear that women's rights was going to be on the chopping block. And um, it seems like you have these teenagers that really are responding to that and becoming more aggressive about longer term birth control. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting.
2: I mean, there are two things I think everyone can agree on. No one wants an unwanted pregnancy. Right. That's right. No one wants that. That's not a thing you wait. I can't wait to have an unwanted
0: pregnancy. You know, right. And And even religious conservatives who are staunchly against abortion still would rather just avoid the entire problem of the unwanted pregnancy to begin with. And you know what else, Matt, according to like OB clinics around the country, requests for contraceptive refills have increased 30 to 40 percent since the Dobbs decision.
2: Again, I think this is like a strange side effect of something that was horrible. And yeah. again, like if this nets
0: out to have less unwanted pregnancies, that's a win. I don't know that I would say it's a win because it's at a very, very steep cost. But I do think that I can look at it objectively and say that is a sort of a silver lining. I will say this, though, we, we can't be up for too long in our emotion here because right. there was some disturbing stuff to come out of this report. One of the things that really, really disturbed me was that There were some reports of teenagers saying that the reason that they wanted birth control was because they were afraid that if they got raped, they wouldn't be able to have abortions.
2: Oh, yeah. Way to bring it way down and way real.
0: Right. Like that's really fucked up. Like if that's really what's going on, that some of these extra requests for birth control are because people are afraid that through no actions of their own, they'll end up becoming The victim of a sex crime and then need an abortion and not be able to get one. That is deeply disturbing. But let me just say this, as disturbing as that may be, I'm interested in the fact that it sounds like teenagers are actually talking to their parents more about the need for contraception. And even if the teenagers are saying, hey, mom and dad, I'm really afraid that this new legal world we're living in could mean that I could be the victim of a sex crime. And for that reason alone, I should be on birth control pills. It's still sort of not a bad idea for those teens to be having open conversations with their parents about you know, sexual health. So it, it's like, yes, we don't really want that to be the reason, but the overall net effect has some positive attributes to it. What's terrifying here
2: I have a daughter, you have a daughter. just the idea that they would have to go on birth control not just to prevent unwanted pregnancy, but to prevent them from getting pregnant if they got
0: raped. that's I can't, there are no words for that. No yeah I mean it's really, really disturbing to think that that would be anyone's mindset. but I also have to just interject this. you know, I think I'm sure that there are people that that is exactly what they're thinking because that is how problematic some of these state laws are. On the other hand, I have to wonder just how many teenagers are telling their parents, mom, dad, I'm terrified that I might be a rape victim someday. And that's why I want to go on the pill. When in actuality, this is a teenager who is sexually active of her own volition and is not comfortable saying that to their parents, but can say, here's a a reason why I want to go on the pill that has nothing to do with my own actions.
2: It's a brave new world.
0: So, I mean, I, I who knows? Who knows any of this? Even if it's that young women today are growing up in a world that is vastly different than the world that has come before them, the fact that they are aware of legally what their rights are, that they are paying attention to their own health and the consequences of their health, I think that that is a positive thing. I don't think that giving up women's rights is, is a good price to have paid for it. But I do think that this is sort of a heartening response in much the way that when Trump came into office and individual rights started falling one at a time, you saw young people voting more than ever and getting involved in government more than ever. So, you know, we saw a pandemic and we saw people paying attention to their health more than ever. So anytime something is sort of catastrophic in the world, it does sometimes have the effect of raising awareness and raising involvement and, and teaching people that they have to take care of themselves. So again, I wouldn't want to pay this price for it, but at the same time, I can recognize that this is a positive result.
2: Right, and we just look at what happened in Kansas and other states, at the ballots, like we, they've awakened the sleeping beast. Women are now more aware that their rights are being taken away from them by asshole men, <laughs> and they're not going to take it anymore.
0: Mm-hmm hmm. And, and yeah, it's true. I mean, it's like sometimes things have to get really bad for people to pay attention. And while I don't want that to be the catalyst always every time, it is always a good thing when people pay attention. So I, this is sort of like fuckery, but there's like this other side of it. So I, I had to bring that to your attention.
2: All right. I, I, should I care less or care more about the next story?
0: You should definitely care more about okay. the next one. Okay. The next story is like some quiet sneaky fuckery.
2: Okay, sneaky fuckery. Go ahead.
0: Sneaky fuckery. So remember before we talked about the CDC and how it's like, I shouldn't say it, how they are going through all kinds of massive changes. A (laughs) rebrand. A massive rebrand, although still not dropping that plural S on the Centers for Disease Control.
2: That's right. Center. Centers. I don't
0: understand. But this was so weird to me. So the CDC issued new guidance about wearing masks, where the CDC decided, like, you don't have to wear masks anymore most of the time, except in areas of, quote, high COVID-19 transmission. But the, what's weird about it is that you would think that this would be like a major thing, like it would be in Times Square, up, you know, on top of that cup of noodles thing, like everybody would know, hey, you don't have to wear masks anymore. It's always the cup of noodles. It is. that. Like, if it's not on top of the cup of noodles, it's not big news. Right. But, like, not so much. Like, they just sort of snuck it in to their website and, like, didn't really, like, tell anybody that this was a big deal.
2: I mean, I'm on the fence about this, too. I can understand, yes, there are still 400 deaths a day, and no one wants that if it's preventable. But, again, you know, we go back to our – we are anti-death here on the <laughs> show. Course. We continue to be anti-death here on the show. And no one wants unwanted deaths. But is it possible – because I, I know Biden said COVID's over, which is maybe a little broad brush at this point now, but is it fair to think that the fact that we're not on lockdown, nearly everything's kind of back to, quote, normal, end quote, and this is now something we're living with as a managed condition or disease, and long is a real thing worthy of longitudinal study. Where do you draw the balance between this and that?
0: Well, you know, I tend to agree that, It makes sense to me that we wouldn't have mask mandates in places like schools or in department stores or supermarkets, stuff like that. This particular change coming from the CDC was about the healthcare settings, like in doctor's offices and stuff. And to me, that seems weird because I feel like those are the places that should be extra, extra careful. And even if you could be perfectly safe with no mask in the supermarket, it strikes me that a doctor's office might be the place where we want to be a little extra cautious and here's the thing, right? So what the CDC said is it issued this, I thought the guidance was like kind of weird because what they said was, you don't need universal masking in healthcare settings. It doesn't have to be all the time. right? But when, it, when you, we do still recommend it when it's high COVID transmission, which is actually different from high community levels. So it's like not so much about how many COVID cases there are in your town or whatever, but it's about what the transmission rate is. And I guess that depends on, what variant we're talking about and how contagious it is at that time. So I like that it's based on kind of an external marker. It's like, listen, it depends on something that is measurable. And that makes sense to me. The only thing is, how the hell are we going to do that? Are the healthcare settings going to like look every day like the way we look at the heat index? I mean, and the other thing is, you know, the CDC says, but you should still mask if you're caring for patients who are immunocompromised. But in a doctor's office, how the hell are you going to know if the person sitting next to you is immunocompromised or not?
2: Well, I like the idea of masking in doctor's offices in general. I mean, like we did it in the operating rooms. That's not going away. But just the idea you're not you're in a hospital. I just like the general idea of wearing a mask in a hospital. I go to my podiatrist. maybe, Maybe that's a little different than going to like my pediatrician and all the sick kids are over there, but they probably have cooties and not COVID.
0: Right, like motion to always have masks at the pediatrician's office. Yes, always every pediatrician's office, all the time, forever. Yes, like literally forever. Because if I'm going to be around a room full of sick children, could I please just not catch whatever plague they have? It's like not even COVID-specific at all. Like, just, just cooties fuckery. I was in my podiatrist's office yesterday, as a matter of fact, and like half of those people looked like they were in rough shape. Oh boy. Like, I mean, I kind of feel like
2: it's foot COVID.
0: I <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, can't we, if we're going to drop the masks, it shouldn't be like, well, keep them on for these people, but not for those people on these days, but not those days in these communities, but not the, it's just too much. And it makes it too difficult for people to follow the rules. And I just think that anytime it's a complex set of rules with too many different variables, nobody knows what the hell to do. And that frustrates people.
2: But then I look at like the New York City subway system, which I take every single day, and, yeah, we're all crammed in there. Things are back to normal. You can't breathe. You can't stand. You can't do. And, and half the place is masked and half isn't. It kind of is like a caveat emptor at this point now. But I understand the take of you're going to a medical facility, maybe not a diatrist, but you're going to a medical facility where there could be other people that are just regular sick. And you do not want to be exposed to that stuff. I, I just like the idea of general cooties prevention. But if COVID yeah. gets lopped under cooties, I'm okay with that, too.
0: Right. And there's also the issue of you can choose if you're someone who is immunocompromised, you can choose not to take the subway. You can say, listen, I know I'm going to go in the subway and it's going to be half the people with masks and we're going to be shoved in like sardines and and I'm not going to do it. But if you have to go to the doctor's office, you don't really have that choice. You have to go to the doctor's office. So it's kind of like you don't have that luxury of just deciding you're not going to do it or that you're going to do it during off hours. Like you can go food shopping in the middle of the night, but if you need to go see your cardiologist, you're going to need to do that during the regular business day, perhaps when a ton of other people are there and you don't really have a lot of control over that. So I feel like it's respectful of others to say people might be here, not because they want to be and they're not choosing to be, but they have to be here and who the hell knows what their health conditions are. So like, let's be extra careful. Yeah, but
2: you can so, also slice and dice it. Like the podiatrist, like if you have a fever, don't go to the podiatrist. If you have a fever, <laughs> go to urgent care, right? So, <laughs> you like,
0: know what I'm really laughing? Because of all of the doctors and offices and professionals that I see in my life on a daily basis, my podiatrist actually has the strictest COVID policies of anyone I know. Oh, wow! They will. They will not even allow you to walk in the office unless you are masked and no one takes the mask down.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> real power.
0: It's really funny, but it's true. It's like the podiatrist that just happens to have the strongest policies. And and I'm, I imagine it's because maybe someone who works there is immunocompromised or something, or they have they do have a lot of elderly patients. So, I mean, I, I don't know why, but I'll tell you that when I walk in that office, I'm kind of like, all right, good. I'll, I'll be a little extra safe here. I don't have to you know be so nervous. Yeah. Whereas like when I go onto the subway, I don't even worry so much about COVID on the subway. I just refuse to touch the poles. I refuse.
2: Yeah, yeah, those are probably just full of all sorts of goodness, right there.
0: They are. I have, I have like my patented approach where I put my back onto the mm-hmm. the pole so that I don't ever have to. And yeah, then it. your
2: shirt get cancer.
0: Right, <laughs> my shirt right. gets cooties.
2: All right. On that note, uh, we're gonna take a break with a word from our sponsor, Doctor Scholes. I'm kidding; they're not a sponsor. So if you heard a Doctor Scholes ad, I'm a seer. If you didn't, I'm a liar. Take <laughs> your poison. Before we start our third story, I wanted to chime in on what I mentioned last week, which is my involvement with the Biden administration's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, which is kind of equated to in a not so apples to apples way about the, the NASA uh, moonshot in the 60s. We are aspiring as a nation to do something in an accelerated fashion because it's impossible and hard and we need the motivation at this point. And we've never really had a president, even including Obama, who tried and just got nailed down with everything, who can level executive actions using what already exists that doesn't need federal mandates. And he he's really, again, his son died of brain cancer, He's highly motivated. He's in this personally. And he just needed to understand from the advocacy community what can be done in the White House from a perspective that is a national agenda. It's part of the Democratic platform. It should be part of everyone's platform to cure cancer. No one is pro-cancer. But just to sum it up, one little nugget, I really want to do a little deeper dive into this with my colleagues who are working in the White House. But we discussed this on my other show, Out of Patients, that we're at this point now in medicine where blood tests can detect cancer. And I don't mean like leukemia tests, but like pancreatic cancer, lung cancer. There are these cancer things floating around in your body that normally you have to get all these scans and things to happen. Now there are blood tests that, that just predict your risk for certain cancers like before you get them, they're called multi-cancer genetic blood tests, or some MCEDs, multi-cancer early detection tests, MSEDs. He's hell-bent on accelerating rapid development of MSEDs to go to market more quickly. If we can have genomic tests, these genetic blood tests, with your primary care doctor when you go every year, we could potentially save millions of lives who don't need to get cancer care because they didn't yet get the cancer. So that's kind of like a very, like a 30,000 foot in the sky idea behind what the moonshot is going to push forward, at
0: least for the next two years. I feel like that's like the the Italian moms version of cancer prevention, where we just like to worry about things way before they even happen. And like that is our entire method of prevention is to just worry about Everything we possibly can, as hard as we possibly can, even though the problem hasn't actually occurred yet.
2: It, it's like the new prevention—like forget diet and exercise; just don't get it in the first place with a blood test.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think that's great, and and let's uh, let's really hope that all of that comes to fruition as planned, because I think it's it, it couldn't be more important.
2: Just reminds me of that uh, movie with Chris Rock where he ran for president, and his opponents like Maze Gilliam is. <laughs> pro-cancer like no no he's not he's he's not pro-cancer no one is pro-cancer but it is my hope that this gets widely adopted and accepted and not confucked in the news this is good stuff really good stuff
0: it is well please keep us posted on everything that happens with the moonshot initiative
2: we're going from good stuff non-fuckery good stuff to our third story which is fiscal fuckery ultra fiscal fuckery
0: it's really bad Now, you're going to have to stick with me because it's kind of a complicated story, but I promise you're going to be super pissed after I give you the details. I'm already angry. (laughs) I am super annoyed. So here's what's going on. There's this hospital in Virginia called Richmond Community Hospital, and it's in a poor neighborhood. It's owned by a larger hospital system called Bone Secours Mercy Health, which is one of the largest nonprofit healthcare chains in the country. And this hospital chain Bone Secours apparently is making all kinds of money. Okay, they're actually making a hundred million dollars per year from this specific program. And what the program is is a discounted prescription drug rate. So there is a federal program that allows clinics in poor neighborhoods to buy prescription drugs at really low prices. Which you know sounds great, right? Of course, like they should get it at a really cheap price. And then what they do is they can then. Charge the insurance companies the full price for that drug, and they can pocket the difference. Now it sounds a little sketch, but you know, on the other hand, I get it. It's like we're doing this buying in bulk and letting the hospital reap the benefit, as opposed to letting the insurance companies reap the benefit. So I mean, I can I can get on board with that, right? Right. So the New York Times reported that Bone Secours it was it was participating in this program. It was getting all of this profit because it was getting discounted drugs. But instead of using that extra money to invest in its own hospital system, which is what it was supposed to do, it used the money to invest in like completely different stuff that had nothing to do with its patients. Like pole
2: dancing strategies?
0: I mean, basically, (laughs) that's basically what it did. Now, what's interesting is that the federal program didn't require that the hospitals that get these discounts use the money to like reinvest in themselves. It wasn't a condition of using the program, but that was like the understanding of what it was supposed to do. And when it started, when when Bone Secours started with this particular hospital, it made a deal with the state of Virginia. And the deal was like, I would sort of file it under questionable, but not terrible. The deal was that it was gonna help the Washington football team, which I don't know what that has to do with anything, but they were going to make like a big economic deal that was going to bring all kinds of money to Richmond. It was going to create hundreds of jobs. It was going to create a nursing school. It was going to lease out a piece of real estate where it built this school. It was going to put nonprofit executives and city leaders into this big medical office. So it was kind of like not investing directly in the hospital itself, in this very poor hospital. But it was like building infrastructure in the community where the hospital existed. And it, you know, was creating jobs. And it was kind of like, like I said, good, maybe it could have been better, but it was still basically good. But what happened was that Bones, of course, didn't even do that. All of those plans, like we're going to build a nursing school and all this stuff just didn't even happen. And instead They used the money to build luxury apartments where like everybody got their own Peloton and they could swim in saltwater pools. And there was like a fancy Mexican restaurant serving margaritas and dry bars, giving blowouts. And it was like not at all what the intent was. It just allowed this hospital system to just create commercial investments and make more profit, but not really do anything to give it back to the hospital that allowed it to get this major profit.
2: That is quality capitalism.
0: And and you know what? It's like really adding insult to injury is that the hospital, it was originally founded by black doctors who were not allowed to practice in white hospitals. And, you know, that was the core of this hospital's kind of original purpose. And eventually it gets sold to this large hospital system that then like strips away all the services and gets rid of the ICU beds. And the physicians working in this hospital say it's a complete disaster because it's so underfunded. It's operating in a really impoverished neighborhood and it sounds like an absolute mess.
2: Definitely fuckery.
0: I mean, it sounds really bad.
2: This is very bad, very, very bad.
0: You know, and the question is, what do we do about these kind of things? Because these federal programs that allowed the hospital system to profit, I mean, at least to me, they sound like a good thing, right? Like we want the hospitals to be able to take advantage of things like bulk discounts, right? But
2: if they don't reinvest in the things that matter most to why they should exist in the first place, that's
0: terrible. Yeah, it's a problem. Right. But the only thing is, you know, and I'm not an economist, but there's only so far that federal programs can go to forcing private companies and private organizations to spend their money in certain ways. So to say like, okay, you're a failing hospital. Um, Here's a way that maybe you could get back on your feet, but you have to use the profit you've made in this particular way. I mean, that does seem a little problematic because, you know, generally the government doesn't force private industry to use their profits in one way or another way. Like, why would we stop there? Then like, let's force every company to spend their money in a good way. You know what I'm saying? Like, it might be a little too much, but I don't know because this is then like, the opposite of what we were trying to accomplish by even having this program in the first place.
2: Yeah, I'm not really happy about
0: this story. <laughs> no, it's 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 it really is terrible, and I can only hope that things like media coverage end up making a difference here, because you know hospitals survive on publicity and donors and that kind of thing, and I, I cannot imagine that it's been good for this hospital system since this New York Times piece came out.
2: No, I I would imagine this has been terrible for them for all the right reasons, but it's probably
0: a cautionary tale that this could be happening in many other places. Oh, I'm sure it is happening in many other places. I mean, I'd like to to think that there aren't a ton of hospitals using poor clinics to fund football teams, but like who the fuck knows? And I'm going to be busy being extremely annoyed with this particular system.
2: Well, on that note, it is time to wrap up with some quick headlines. What do you got for us?
0: Remember last week's story about the um, mental health professionals striking over there in California at Kaiser?
2: Yes, yes, yes.
0: So the negotiations are continuing between the professionals and their employer, but so far it hasn't been successful. They just threw out a, a potential deal. It's not working. So the negotiations continue, but there's not been a resolution yet. All right. What's next? Other good news, sounds like there's going to be a twin twindemic of flu and COVID this year, according to NPR. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait for that. Doesn't it, though?
2: <laughs> wait, no, no, that's I, a, wait, that's bad, twin.
0: <laughs> it's funny because I saw the headline, "Twin Demic" and I was like, oh, is everyone having twins? And yes. And they were like, no, actually, you're going to get two illnesses. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I can leave you on a high note, though. Go for it. Cancer deaths are declining by 2% every year since 2016. I
2: would just really quickly respond by saying that this is the result of better testing, better diagnostics, and it's less early detection Then, once you have it, you're probably going to go on better therapies that exist because they're now medicines based on your genetics. So you don't yeah. have to go through the nuclear easy bake oven shit that I went through.
0: Yeah. ABC News said that that the three main causes for the drop in cancer deaths is more screenings, New cancer, drugs on the market, and less smoking overall, which is of course a really good thing all right. this equates to three and a half million lives that are are not being lost to cancer, so I mean two percent doesn't sound huge, but it actually is really, really big and um and that's great. I'm glad to know that as a as a world, we're getting better with cancer.
2: progress can be great it can be all right <laughs> on that note, we are wrapping up this episode of Health Careless because we're tired. We're old. What's our excuse today?
0: We're out of fuckery for the day. Yeah,
2: we're just done. We're done.
0: <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. We look forward to being back with you here next week to discuss all the latest fuckery in healthcare news. Matt, thanks for joining me.
2: All right. See you next week.
0: See you next week, everyone.
2: Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary and the Health Careless segment. Is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary, Iluer Nanos, and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Sarah Rosa Davies. It's mixed and edited by Sarah Rosa Davies and Kyle Moore. Shout out to Brianna Seely for added support, and special thanks to our segment co-host Iluer Nanos.